Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Robert Guest, The Economist's foreign editor. While the world has been preoccupied with tackling COVID-19, other pandemics continue in the shadows. Today, how is COVID-19 affecting the fight against malaria? For Africa, the health system have some weaknesses. If it was the situation of we see in everywhere else, most of the bed will be taken by the COVID-19 patient. We'll also look at how malaria has shaped human history for thousands of years. It's shaped our evolution. It's shaped history from wars, economies, politics, as well as dinosaurs. And can scientists help finally eliminate malaria from the world? The missing diagnosis in the field is a big challenge for malaria elimination. The people of Medina Falk, district in western Senegal, have been battling malaria since time immemorial. His name is Dallo at Medina Falk. Uh, he has his younger brother who died to the malaria 25 years ago. At the time, he had five years old. Her name is Matilo. From her experience of malaria, in her family 20 years ago, her and her kids was having malaria. To bring your family to the hospital, Psychologically, it was tough to know your family is sick. You bring it to the hospital, it's painful. You have afraid of what's going to happen, but fortunately the doctors help us to, to survive. Malaria is a debilitating and often deadly disease. It infects more than 200 million people every year. And in 2019, 400,000 people died of it, mostly children in Africa. The vector, the organism that carries and transmits the parasite, is the humble mosquito, specifically the female Anopheles mosquito. And these bugs usually bite from around dusk to dawn. Once injected into the human body, the parasite travels to the liver, where it multiplies and then enters the red blood cells. Inside the red blood cells, the parasites rapidly multiply until they burst out, releasing even more parasites into the bloodstream. In just over a week, malaria infection causes flu-like symptoms such as fever, joint pain, headaches and vomiting. If left untreated, it can lead to severe and life-threatening complications such as breathing problems and organ failure. Malaria is preventable, diagnosable, treatable, curable. So every malaria death is avoidable. 
Philip Wilkoff is Director for Malaria at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. One of the foundation's aims is to reduce the burden of infectious diseases in poor countries. We've made a lot of progress against malaria over the last 15 years, rolling out the new bed net and switching to new drugs and using these lateral flow rapid diagnostic tests. The number of people dying to malaria decreased and the number of deaths decreased because of intervention that happened since more than 10 years now. Professor Dauda Ndiaye is Senegal's top malaria expert, based at Sheikh Anta Diop University in Dakar. In Senegal, we start implementing intervention like to provide treatment, we provide nationwide rapid diagnostic tests for everyone. In 2013, we had the first national campaign, and uh, last year, more than 10 million people received bed nets. Bed nets is free for children under five, for pregnant women. Access to healthcare is better. The clinicians are better trained and treatment is subsidized from the government. Are much more protected people than before. Preventive treatments help people like Sadatu. She's a mother of seven and lives in Nigeria. When she's given preventative drugs, she feels less worried that her children will die of malaria. Whenever she feels dizziness, she feels that it's symptoms of malaria, then she'll come down here to collect malaria prevention drugs. As soon as they collect the drugs, when she takes the medication, they used to feel all right, and she's okay, she's not scared. Another way to curb the epidemic is to distribute bed nets that have been laced with insecticide to stop the mosquitoes from biting at night. There is a lot of improvement now because of they sleeping all under bed nets every night. There are a lot of campaign and there is a real improvement. Almost you can say that malaria is not now a problem here in Medina Fall, in the community. In Medina Fall in Senegal, malaria has all but been eliminated in recent years. But this year, all around Africa, health workers are struggling to continue deploying their anti-malarial tools because of the additional threat of the COVID-19 pandemic. At the beginning, COVID-19 was supposed to have impact on malaria for the mortality and the morbidity for several reasons. Professor Dauda and DI again. First, for instance, there are country was supposed to do bed nets coverage. There are no possibility to do it because of the restriction for travel, for distance, for others. And uh, for Africa, the health system have some weaknesses in terms of number of hospital uh, clinics, number of beds. If it was the situation of we see in uh, everywhere else, most of the bed will be taken by the COVID-19 patient. And knowing that malaria need a lot of beds and, and, and clinicians might take care of the COVID-19 rather than malaria. Also, people doesn't know really at the beginning this disease. And afraid, are were afraid to go to the hospital for care because they feel when they go to hospital, they will get COVID-19 and they can die. So they're not going to the hospital. They feel also that all fever might be COVID-19. And this have my impact the case management. A big public health announcement went out with just COVID in mind that said, if you have a fever, stay home. Philip Wilkoff told me why the different messages that health authorities have to give out for malaria and COVID-19 could be a problem. But for malaria, where untreated malaria is so bad, it's the worst possible advice. This is particularly problematic for children. Very few young people contract severe COVID-19 and even fewer die of it. 
But it's the opposite for malaria. Children under five years old are the most vulnerable group to the disease. In 2019, they were two-thirds of all the malaria deaths worldwide. Telling children to stay at home if they feel sick is very dangerous in malarial areas because malaria has to be treated immediately after diagnosis. If this doesn't happen, the risk of it getting very severe, possibly even causing death, increases. Another problem is that particularly in remote rural areas, a lot of people don't understand COVID-19 and the measures in place to avoid infection with the coronavirus. There's a malaria and coronavirus. She says she knows about the virus, but she has never seen someone that has the virus. So they, she more believes in malaria than COVID-19. Corona is the most scary to me because this malaria, if one takes medicine, actually he is going to heal. People are more fear of malaria than coronavirus because some people did not believe even the corona is existing, but they believe that malaria is existing. Malaria has been here with us and they see malaria actually killing over time. Dr. Nglas Bassi is a World Health Organization malaria consultant in Borno State, Nigeria. Malaria is most common in poor areas, and the disease also makes these areas more poor because it's very hard to work if you're shaking with fever. Most Nigerians are familiar with malaria, but COVID-19 is new and mysterious. For COVID, they believe it's a Western disease. They also believe it's a rich man's disease. And since so many of them have not really seen anybody within their locality falling sick of COVID, to them it's still a mystery disease. Umar, a local government official in Borno State, Nigeria, agrees. If you can see our teams are wearing this face mask and they have their hand sanitizers with them and they are getting this two meter distance between them and the caregivers, so those are the type of prevention measures that we are taking. And we are even telling the caregivers that they should prevent their safe by keeping their safe in social distance, by frequently washing their hands. Many people in northeastern Nigeria have had to flee their homes because of fighting between the army and Boko Haram, a jihadist group. In camps for displaced people, community health workers like Usman have been educating the public on how to reduce the risk of contracting COVID-19. Don't come closer than people. Use hand sanitizer. If now you enter this clinic, if you don't have face mask, they didn't allow you to enter. Maintain social distance. The parents, I think that they have face mask. People are distributing them. As the COVID-19 pandemic has progressed, thanks to heroic efforts from health workers, so far, the worst fears about the effect that COVID-19 would have on malaria have not been realised. We take the case of Senegal and people now understand the disease. There are a lot of communication and sanitization to explain what is the disease. Also, clinicians are trained on taking care of those two diseases. Uh, for example, they commonly have fever. For all cases, they have to screen for malaria. And also, if it's not malaria, to screen for COVID-19, for example. People are better informed now how to protect themselves. Although some people are not protecting themselves, but they are better informed. Because if you go to some places, some people won't even want you to help them. They won't even want to shake hands with you, which is something that COVID has brought in. And if you tell someone, wash your hand, they don't take offense. But before COVID, 
You can't tell someone to wash their hair when he's entering your house or when you're entering the person's shop or something like that. The possible symptoms of the malaria are fever, drowsiness, and she sometimes feels bitterness in her mouth. Although the symptoms of malaria and COVID-19 are quite similar, often Nigerians can tell the difference between the two because they are so familiar with malaria like Nana, who lives in Borno State. She went to the hospital and get medication the day before yesterday. She certain it's not coronavirus. She actually knows that this is malaria fever. This means she feels confident in going out to get treatment when it's required. Uh, they don't have corona here. Malaria parasites have been transmitted by mosquitoes for thousands of years, and not just in Africa, all over the world. Coming up, how has malaria shaped history? Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, copyright 2024. Malaria has been the scourge of humanity across our existence. Timothy Weingard is a professor of history at Colorado Mesa University and author of the book The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. Some estimates put it upwards of half of all human beings who've ever lived have succumbed to mosquito-borne diseases, specifically malaria. It shaped our evolution from the fact that malaria has literally changed our DNA with sickle cell and thalassemia and other hasty natural selective responses to the cataclysmic rates of malaria in Africa and parts of the Mediterranean. It's shaped history from wars, economies, politics across our human journey, as well as dinosaurs. Dinosaurs were infected with malaria as well. Vector-borne diseases are partly responsible for the demise of dinosaurs before the meteor hit, actually. So it's been shaping life on this planet since time immemorial. It's hard to overstate how malaria has shaped the human experience. It's turned the tides in multiple wars. It's brought down despots. And for centuries, malaria actually protected the Roman Empire. The Pontine Marshes are 310 square miles of marshland that run essentially from Rome south towards Naples and Anzio. And historically, they were a hotbed of malarial fevers. In fact, visitors to Rome were very quick to point out how sickly the people were, and they'd never seen anything quite like this. The Romans thought the fevers people caught when they went too close to the marshes were caused by noxious fumes. Hence the name malaria, which literally means bad air. In 218 BC, Hannibal, a Carthaginian general, crossed the Alps with 60,000 troops, 12,000 horses and 37 elephants. 
he brilliantly defeated the Roman armies of Trebia, Trasimene, and Cannae. But he was driven away by malaria, which cost him his right eye, his wife, his son, and a huge portion of his army. Later invasions by assorted barbarians met a similar doom. It essentially acts as a shield protecting the Eternal City. Malaria is one of the reasons why the Roman Empire was so difficult to topple and why it lasted so long. In the 15th and 16th centuries, the Columbian Exchange was responsible for the transfer of plants, animals, human populations, culture, and diseases. Malaria was one of several plagues introduced to the Americas. Parasites crossed the ocean in the blood of slaves and settlers. Local mosquitoes sucked them up and spread them. Originally in the plantation system of the American colonies, whether it's Spanish plantations, British, French, Dutch, Danish, all these European imperialist powers coming to the Americas to plant primarily sugar, coffee, and tobacco, at first, they were using local indigenous peoples as slave labor, unfortunately, and 90 to 95 percent of indigenous peoples in the Americas were dead of European diseases within 200 years. It's absolutely shocking and horrific. They had no immunity to these diseases, which included malaria and yellow fever and other mosquito-borne diseases. Then they started using European indentured servants. So when the first African slaves were brought over, they noticed very quickly then in the hotbed of these Caribbean climates and plantations where European indentured servants died in droves of mosquito-borne disease, specifically malaria, the Africans withstood the onslaught of malaria a little better with their genetic shields, whether it's thalassemia, sickle cell, Duffy antigen negativity. All these are for the different types of malarias that we have. So it's part of the reason why African slavery was a more profitable venture on the plantation colonies than European indentured servants, and obviously led to a, a horrific, if not the most horrific episode in, in modern human history. Africans tended to survive, even when forced to work in mosquito-infested sugar plantations. The genetic shields that Timothy Weingard referred to are sickle cell genes, a mutation common in Africans, which offers resistance against Plasmodium falciparum, the deadliest strain of malaria, and also red blood cell Duffy antigen negativity, which renders most West and Central Africans impervious to Plasmodium vivax, another malarial strain. Iloa Kuli is the director of the Museum of Slavery on Gore Island, Senegal. The museum is essentially the house of Anne Pepin, an Afro-French trafficker. Monsieur Cooley told me about Pepin's lucrative business and how it was driven partly by the fact that planters wanted African slaves rather than Native Americans or indentured Europeans because they didn't die of disease so quickly. In the most malarial parts of Africa, before the widespread use of anti-malarial drugs, it was perfectly common for half the European settlers to die of malaria in a single year. So they didn't settle in large numbers in these areas, and they tended to rule indirectly through local chieftains. By more or less dictating where the colonialists settled, malaria thus had a huge effect on African history. It helps explain why modern South Africa, for example, has four and a half million citizens with European ancestry, including a large working class, and why it's so different from Nigeria, which has only a handful of white expatriates. 
South Africa gave the world a universally recognizable euphemism for white supremacy. In South Africa, native protests flared against apartheid and passbook laws. 100 died when police fired on demonstrators at Sharpfield. Then came the... And a quarter of a century after apartheid ended, its scars still linger. In Nigeria, the political divisions are completely different and they're between African ethnic groups rather than between Africans and white people. Around the year 1630, in the mountains of Peru, Jesuit missionaries noticed the natives drinking the powdered bark of the cinchona tree in hot water when they were shivering with cold. The missionaries wondered if this might also treat malarial shivers. It did. The active ingredient was what is now called quinine. The discovery of cinchona bark or quinine was a mistake, according to the fabled story. We don't understand at this time what's causing malaria, but we realize quickly that this is a slight preventative, but maybe it, it reduces the symptoms as well. So very quickly, it becomes a lucrative cash crop of the Columbian Exchange as well, which is interesting because it's a new world cure, if you will, for an old world disease. In 1820, French chemists discovered how to extract quinine from cinchona. In 1865, a native braved execution to slip Peruvian cinchona seeds to a British trader. The Dutch government got hold of them, and after 30 years, Dutch planters figured out how to grow them in what is now Indonesia, which was a Dutch colony. By 1900, the Dutch were producing more than 5,000 tonnes of quinine a year and ruthlessly curbing supply whenever the price dipped. When the Germans invaded the Netherlands and Japan invaded Indonesia in the Second World War, suddenly the Axis powers held 95% of the world's quinine, at the time mankind's only shield against malaria. America and the Allies need a replacement, and the Americans start something called the Malaria Project, which is granted the same secrecy and scope as the Manhattan Project to try to solve the problem of malaria, essentially, which is having a huge effect on manpower, specifically in the Pacific War, but also in Africa and in Sicily and in Italy as well. So the combination of synthetic drugs like adabrin and chloroquine with DDT really cuts down malaria rates. DDT was an insecticide so effective in killing mosquitoes that it was dubbed the atomic bomb of the insect world. It is a miraculous mosquito killer. For everything else it does, Malaria rates during the 1950s are reduced by 90% in numerous areas across the globe. The problem is, is it enters the food chain and it kills a lot of other things and causes cancer to humans. But if we're looking just at its effect on mosquitoes, it was a wonder, wonder chemical. Another approach to suppressing the disease is to try to remove the areas where the mosquitoes breed. Julius Caesar thought about draining the Pontine Marshes, so did Napoleon. And Mussolini actually successfully drains the Pontine Marshes in the 1930s prior to the Second World War. And what happens is it's very fertile farmland right on the doorstep of Rome to feed, you know, an immense population. So he sets up model towns and it's actually one of the success stories in human history of combating and defeating both the Anopheles mosquito and malaria. So whatever else Mussolini is or isn't, he's very successful in that. But during the war, this was deliberately reversed. What happens when the Allies are landing at Anzio to circumvent the German line to march on Rome is German malariologists instruct 
Field Marshal Kesselring to reflood the Pontine marshes, which they do purposefully to reintroduce malaria to infect Allied troops, which again does happen. So it's the only example of purposeful biological warfare in the 20th century. My wife's grandfather landed at Anzio and he contracted malaria as a deliberate act of Nazi biological weaponry. It's quite an amazing, horrific, but amazing story. Malaria has had such a huge impact on history, it's tempting to ask, what would the world be like if it had never existed? Our world would be completely unrecognisable. It would be vastly different from the world we inhabit today, whether that's from borders, nation states, and that has to do with malaria essentially deciding various wars across human existence, but also poverty rates, the disparity in wealth, because if you look at the United States, if you look at Italy, you look at Spain, you look at China, the southern half of these countries were malarial hotbeds where the northern half of these countries weren't. So there's a huge economic disparity between the north and south in these countries, even still when you look at the US poverty rates in the south compared to the north or Italy, Spain, China. around 2000, the number of people dying of malaria each year has fallen by about half. One thing that helps, and will continue to help, is the improving scientific understanding of the parasite. I visited the anti-malaria genomics lab at the University of Sheikh Anta Diop in Dakar, Senegal, to investigate. Scientists there are making huge efforts to refine their diagnosis tools. The missing diagnosis in the field is a big challenge for malaria elimination. This missing diagnosis causes many transmission in the field. And if we use the molecular tools, we can see exactly what we have in these samples. Rapid diagnostic tests, or RDTs, allow for a malaria diagnosis in 15 minutes, out in the field, far from the laboratory, and without the need for a doctor present. That could make a huge difference. The rapid test is like a small cassette, like a pregnant test. So that we use in the field to know if a patient has malaria or not. There are several species of parasite that cause malaria, of which the deadliest is Plasmodium falciparum. We want to be sure that those tests are very reliable. We want to know if all the rapid tests are detecting all Plasmodium species or to help the National Malaria Control Program to decide if they can keep using those rapid tests or if it's the time to change to the, another one. To be effective in preventing outbreaks, the rapid diagnostic tests have to be able to detect all of the different kinds of malaria parasites. Now the transmission is getting lower and we have very few parasite infecting people and sometimes it can be missed by RDTs. We receive the rapid tests, extract them and run molecular tools that are more sensitive than the rapid tests and we will be able to tell if all tests were detecting the right thing or not. The genomics is looking for the genome of the parasite. We were able to see if the malaria treatment given to the patient are good enough. 
Professor Tahudan Diai uses genomics, the study of genomes, to understand malaria better. He told me that before genomics arrived, there were lots of questions without answers. Now, he and his team have a much better idea of how malaria is being transmitted around the country. The biggest issue we have is importation. And to see really if the region is free or still some cases. Because a region where there is no malaria, almost no intervention will happen. If there is still one case, we have to put intervention. So the genomics help us. If only one kind of parasite is found in the samples from a given village, there may be only one source of infection. The villagers are infecting each other. Multiple different parasites suggest that there are multiple sources of infection, perhaps traders crossing a border, migrant workers coming home and so on. People on buses travel much farther than mosquitoes can fly. All of the parasite data are combined in a database which can track routes of infection. We have thousand thousand sample genome in Senegal using the barcoding and the sequencing. And for that, if there are any new cases at the hospital, we go to the community. We compare the parasite we found in the community to the parasite we found in the clinic. If it's the same genome, it's definitely the same parasite. So meaning the transmission is local. If we don't see anyone, we go and look for the mosquito. And for the mosquito, we're looking for the parasite. And we take the parasite and see if this is still the same genome from the parasite and from the mosquito. Genomics can also help with the other big problem with malaria, the ability of the parasite to mutate and develop resistance to anti-malarial drugs. Genomics also help us to understand the level of resistance of the artemisinin combination therapy. And for any of the drugs we know, so the genomics help us if there is any resistant mutation. Two years ago, we have an outbreak. And for the outbreak, they call us and see how the genomics can help us to see if the outbreak is due to malaria or something else. When we do the genomics, we were able to find that it's only for malaria, nothing else. Because the genomics is not only looking for malaria, but any other disease, known or unknown. The professor is determined to see Senegal conquer malaria by 2030. It's just a target. But I think it's feasible. So we are optimistic, but we have to be prepared, hard working hard, and to have also the community engagement, to be really the one who leading the job and supported by the national system. But we need some capacity building for data management, for genomics information testing, for vaccine trial. In December 2020, a rare malaria parasite called Plasmodium ovale was discovered in Kerala, India. It was reportedly found in a soldier who had travelled from Sudan. The work on genomics is vital to help understand how the disease spreads and hopefully to avoid the spread of new pathogens. The determined response to COVID-19 and the incredibly rapid development of vaccines for it shows that it is possible, with a bit of luck and a lot of effort, for humanity to turn the tide on pandemics. And perhaps we can take hope from that, that one day we'll be able to defeat malaria, the deadliest pandemic of all time. Our thanks go to Professor Daoudou Ndiaye and all the researchers at Sheikh Anta Diop University, to Nglas Ini Abasi and all of the people we spoke to in Nigeria and Senegal. 
Thanks also to Philip Welkoff and Timothy Weingard. And thank you for listening. You could read the full analysis on how COVID-19 has affected the fight against malaria in Africa at economist.com. Why not take out a subscription at economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer? The link is in the show notes for this episode. I'm Robert Guest, and in London, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.